Well, um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this first meeting of the Temenos Academy since the summer break. We're very fortunate this evening in having as our speaker Jack Herbert. Jack will, of course, be well known to many of you. He's a fellow of the Temenos Academy and a member of the academic board, and he has in the past lived and worked in both Japan and Germany. He's lectured at the universities of Kyushu and Munich, and he was, until his retirement um, not very long ago, staff tutor in literature at the Cambridge, Cambridge University Institute of Adult Education. Tonight, Jack will be speaking to us on the subject of alchemy's royal art and the creative imagination. And he's especially well qualified to do this, first because he was a student of the late Kathleen Rain and studied with her the thought of William Blake, for whom the creative role of the imagination was such a pivotal idea. And secondly, because of his very deep and extensive knowledge of the German cultural tradition, which has continuously drawn strength and inspiration from alchemical and related esoteric schools of thought. And in doing so, uh, the German tradition has, I think, provided an invaluable counterweight to the scientific materialism which has dominated so much of Western thinking. Some of you will be familiar with Jack's study, The German Tradition, which uh, Temenos published a couple of years ago, in which he concentrated on the figures of Goethe, Jung, and Rilke. And tonight, we look forward to what I'm sure will be a fascinating and deeply informative extension of these ideas. So it's now my great pleasure to hand you over to Jack Herbert. Thank you, Stephen. It's very kind of you. Right, ladies and gentlemen, um, with a subject like alchemy, the field is so vast and complex that it is impossible to do anything like justice to it within a single or even inside several lectures. What I have therefore decided to do, apart from introducing alchemy, both in terms of its nature and origins, as well as its relationship to the Western esoteric tradition, <coughs> is to select and concentrate on a theme and aspect central to the subject and immensely relevant to Temenus's concerns, namely the creative imagination. For during the course of preparing this talk, I came to see more and more that the imaginative faculty, in the sense of Paracelsus's imaginatio vera, or true imagination, lay at the heart of alchemical studies and experiments, therefore providing an account of creativity, dynamic and transforming, which has been active within and below European culture from the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, and even into the 20th century, in spite of the overall dominance of the scientific world picture. Furthermore, and not surprisingly, of course, alchemic creativity, especially via the input of its philosophical mentor and offspring, Hermeticism, has exerted a major impact on the arts from Shakespeare, Milton, Hieronymus Bosch, and probably Dürer, and Goethe to Blake, Yeats, and Strindberg, just to select uh, several key instances. While Goethe and Strindberg even practiced alchemy, the others responded powerfully to alchemy's and hermeticism's account of the interconnection between spirit and matter, 
together with a sense of their mutually transforming potential, as with Shakespeare's profound and pervasive use of what is called theories of Renaissance contrariety. I'll come back to that later. Now, because of the way in which it uniquely bridges the opposites of spirit and matter, locating the anima in the depths of, the sub of, of substance, alchemy is the most, I think, holistic of all the Western esoteric or exoteric traditions, possessing none of the dualistic overtones present in Platonism or Christianity. Um, the founding text of Hermeticism, um, alchemy's uh, philosophical wing, as it were, ascribed to Hermes Trismegistus, thrice greatest Hermes, or his Egyptian equivalent, the god Thoth, and written down during the first to second centuries AD, was the so-called Tabula Smaragdina, or Emerald Tablet, the opening statement of which is fundamental for all that follows. Quote from the tablet. True it is, without falsehood, certain and most true. That which is above is like to that which is below, and that which is below is like to that which is above, to accomplish the miracles of one thing. The way of thinking expressed here, which is likewise characteristic of traditional magic, is not causal, but analogical, thereby um, enabling the magus or practitioner to knit up, as it were, all material and spiritual levels. So that according to um, the French occultist um, Joseph Pelledin, 1858 to 1918, so you can place him in time-wise, quote him, analogy allows us to pass from the known to the unknown, from the phenomenon to the noumenon, and from the visible to the invisible. One might add here that between the Neoplatonic and the alchemical philosophies, um, she then goes on to elaborate a crucial distinction. Quote, the great difference between the Neoplatonic and the alchemical philosophies lies in their opposed conceptions of the, of the nature of matter. For Plotinus and his school, matter is mere maya, the dregs of the universe, a philosophic non-entity because incapable of form except as it reflects intelligibles. To the alchemist, spirit and matter, active and passive, light and darkness, above and below, are like the Chinese yin and yang complementary principles, both alike rooted in the divine. The deus absconditus, or the absconded, or the, 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 the um, concealed god, is hidden and operating in matter, no less than he is to be found in the spiritual order. Blake's own words summarize the philosophy of alchemy. She then quotes Blake, God is in the lowest effects as well as in the highest causes. Now the reference to the Chinese yin and yang also reminds us of alchemy's deep connection with Taoism. More concerned, however, with longevity and attaining the elixir of life than, tra than transmuting base metals into gold, as in the West. In both Eastern and Western traditions of alchemy, however, there is a similar preoccupation with the role and nature of matter, which is viewed um, as living and sacred, capable of producing spirit out of itself, or spirit descended into it. A perfect analogy and symbol for this would be the lotus in both ancient Egyptian and Buddhist cultures. 
with its root and stem planted firmly in mud and water, its flower blossoming on the surface in air and representing the spirit, all of which demonstrates the presence of a higher principle progressing through everything. The scholar Titus Burkhard, in a fine essay entitled Insight into Alchemy, presents the following foundational statement coupled with a cross-connection highly relevant to my argument at this point. Quote uh, Burkhard, To make of the, of the body a spirit and of the spirit a body, this adage sums up the whole of alchemy. Gold itself, which outwardly represents the fruit of the work, appears as an opaque body become luminous, or as a light become solid. Transposed into the human and spiritual order, gold is bodily consciousness transmuted into spirit, or spirit fixed in the body. In sacred art, the human likeness which most directly expresses the, the spiritualization of the body and the incorporation of the spirit, because the body is the lower that corresponds to the higher, according to the words of the Emerald Tablet, is that of the Buddha. Um, and the analogy with alchemical uh, symbolism is all the more striking in that this image... Could we have the first um, slide? Is Stephen... Oh, yeah, yes, here. Uh, I wonder, could we have the first slide, Stephen, just to... Yes. Um, I just show you um, this to illustrate what Burkhard has been saying. This is a, um, a slide of the um, great Buddha at the Biodoin or Phoenix Temple uh, in Kyoto in Japan, um, carved out of wood, actually, not bronze. It's, it's, it's lacquered. It's uh, lacquer and gold leaf in um, 1053 A.D., um, it's, it comes, um, it, it, you will find it uh, and this temple in Kyoto. Um, it's about, not, to give you an idea, it's about nine feet high. Um, and you may be interested, gold is the Buddha color. The color beyond all colors, as the Buddhists say, the color of light and enlightenment. And while we have this before going back to Burkhard, just one or two uh, um, kind of um, descriptive and, and, and categorizing words here. Uh, the Buddha sits like Christ in majesty um, on his lotus throne with the huge flame-like halo rising up beyond him or above him. He sits in meditation. One notes the so-called mudra of the hands. This is the Sanskrit for the um, for the way in which the hands, there are many of them, many different, you know, the, the, the giving, the blessing, and so on. The Buddha has a repertoire of, uh, um, of, of such um, um, hand signs, as it were. Anyway, um, it's interesting with the two, you know, semicircles and the two index fingers pointing right up here to the urna, or the center of meditation where the light of enlightenment streams out. Uh, into the world. This is quite deliberately kind of patterned, as it were. Um, now, note also before we leave this, the triangular shape of the image, um, symmetrically composed of two circles and a kind of very flat ellipse there. 
Um, this suggests easy concentration, a rooted, unassailable figure, serene, but somehow a little, perhaps a little, uh, just about to float up, which is accentuated by the flame halo behind him. Um, and so in this sense, the rootedness also and the upward moving at the same time um, leads us to suspect you have a very peculiar fusion of opposites in this way. But though the figure is monumental, it's very different from a Western type of figure um, because it's inwardly monumental, as it were, speaking to his worshippers, as it were, out of detachment and meditation. It's essentially Eastern and Buddhist in that particular way, but it's a remarkable kind of visual and spiritual achievement um, in its own particular way, and I could go on to talk longer about this, but I haven't got time. If we could uh, now come back to... Um, this is to illustrate what uh, Burkhard was saying, uh, that the Buddha is the best kind of example of this kind of um, a kind of, of uh, spiritual, spiritualization of the body and incorporation of the spirit. He's very much there, but in some sense he's also not so much not there, but there are other things kind of that the uh, depiction shows him as representing. Um, and the analogy with alchemical symbolism is all the more striking in that this image, as with other images of the Buddha, comprises solar attributes, halo and rays, and is often gilded, as this one is. We have in mind, especially the Mahayana <coughs> statues of the Buddha. This is one of them. It belongs to the Amida sects of Buddha as the savior. It's in the late Heian period uh, um, of Japanese culture, court culture, before the samurai come along, as it were. The best of which express in the plastic quality of their outward appearance that plenitude which is both immutable and intense and which the body contains but cannot circumscribe. Now, the first three sentences of Burkhard's passage constitute a first-rate summary of the alchemical credo and essence, their integrative nature, while the others, in expanding this, lead us into the, into the domain of sacred art in a highly exploratory, exploratory, illuminating way. For many a gilded Mahayana Buddha appears an, as an opaque body become luminous, or as a light becomes solid. This is the feeling one gets out also of the slide I've just showed you. And the fusion of opposites indicated here is supported in all images of the Buddha seated on his lotus uh, by the way in which no one part of the body is stressed at the expense of others. That's something I also uh, could have mentioned when we had the slide in front of us. But if you remember, above and below, left and right, shoulders, arms, fingers, knees and feet merge together in the soft inward flowing lines that somehow recede, as it were, into the depths of meditation. It's very different from a comparable uh, Western sacred figure in this way. One always notes that there is no movement of form upward, as with, uh, as with Christ in glory, but a sense of concentration, yet relaxation, elevation, yet rootedness. In short, a hovering or floating quality which denotes a play of opposites. This is where uh, it relates to the um, alchemical uh, tradition. 
Now, the origins of alchemy have generally, and up until fairly recently, been located in the Eastern Mediterranean, certainly for alchemy in the West, with perhaps the key centre being that cultural melting pot, Alexandria, during the Hellenistic period of the early centuries AD. It was practised as what one termed the art, the royal art, of transmuting metals, with Greeks, Egyptians, Jews and Arabs all being implicated. And it was the last mentioned group who were primarily responsible for introducing or reintroducing this art into Europe uh, through Moorish Spain, while they themselves developed an alchemical tradition of incomparable richness, which infiltrated the field of imagination in a remarkable way. Indeed, the late Latin word al um, alchemia, from which we derive our own alchemy, stems from the Arabic alchemia, with chemia itself said to stem from the ancient Egyptian word chemia, referring to the black earth of the country of the Nile. But likewise, according to another tradition, um, from the Greek word chemia for smelting. Our word chemistry, of course, with its concept and practice, derives from all this. The result being, as we all know, that alchemy itself has for so long been relegated to the status of simply being the forerunner to chemistry. Totally misguided, naturally, yet at least responsible for getting real science started. It was associated with substances such as phlogiston, supposed to account for the combustible nature of all inflammable bodies, and of course completely disproved by scientific investigation. Nevertheless, as F. Sherwood Taylor, former director of the Science Museum, South Kensington, um, and a scientist fascinated by and sympathetic to alchemy has put it in his very useful The Alchemist, quote Sherwood Taylor, the first laboratories we know of were alchemical laboratories. The alchemists were the first whom we know to have practiced distillation and sublimation. And they invented almost all the chemical apparatus that was in use up to the middle of the 17th century. If we had to assess their position in the history of science, we might best call them the fathers of laboratory technique. It is, however, essential to complement this statement about laboratories with another from the Danish scholar Johannes Fabricius in his Alchemy, the Medieval Alchemists and Their Royal Art, who says this, as gradually the alchemical laboratories changed into psychological laboratories and the alchemical work into explorations of the inner universe, the purgation and transformation of metals were translated into symbolic procedures concerned with the purgation and transformation of souls. Quite obviously, Jung is behind this statement, and it is basically Jung, I think, who rediscovers alchemy for the 20th century. You know, he studied for about 20 years. Um, alchemy therefore became, if it were not rather so from the beginning, a twofold process. Metallurgical on the one hand, philosophical, as Jung termed it, on the other. The latter description undoubtedly derives from the alchemists' um, own designation of their goal, the end product of the opus alchemicum, namely the philosopher's stone, or lapis philosophorum, which would then, they believed, convert base metals into gold or silver. 
True to its double or parallel process, the stone simultaneously represented the inner achievement of transformed mind and psyche, essential to the successful completion of the outer world. So the one is locked into the other. You can't do the one without the other. You can't get the stone without the spiritual state going with it. Um, Titus Burkhardt, again, this time from his book on alchemy, Science of the Cosmos, Science of the Soul, sums up the main thrust of our argument at this point as follows. Alchemy, too, was called an art, even the royal art, Ars Regia, by its masters, and with its image of the transmutation of base metals into the noble metals, gold and silver, serves as a highly evocative symbol of the inward process referred to. In fact, alchemy may be called the art of the transmutations of the soul. In saying this, I am not seeking to deny that alchemists also knew and practiced metallurgical procedures such as the purification and alloying of metals. Their real work, however, for which all these procedures were merely the outward supports or operational symbols, was the transmutation of the soul. The testimony of the alchemists on this point is unanimous. Now, the creation of the noble uh, metals, gold and silver, indicates the royal nature of the art involved and the emerging or, inter or interpenetration as a conjunctio, conjoining, or so-called chemical wedding of golden king as sun with silver queen as moon, described and, and illustrated time and time again in the various alchemical books and treatises, uh, this results in the birth of the philosopher's child or stone. Characterized by the English alchemist Arthur D., 1579-1651, as, quote, our infant of royal stock. This, uh, the slides that I have from this series called The Splendor Solis, The Splendor of the Sun, um, was done in, um, was, was, was painted, was, was, was um, uh, produced in 1582, and is attributed to someone called, who is probably fictitious, the Jewish name, Salomon Trismosing. Um, and is, this is a copy from the British Library, um, and it is actually based on an older um, copy uh, that came from Bavaria, done in about 1525 to, to, uh, to 1550, but this is by far the, uh, the finer version um, artistically. Um, here we have, I can't spend long on this, but just to tell you what we get here, the royal couple here, and above them you have their respective planets, the sun for the king and the moon for the queen, um, is symbolizing here, this is when they first meet. This is not the wedding, the chemical wedding comes later. This is when they first meet, and there is something a little bit um, what's the word I want, in the greeting on the part of the king to the queen there, uh, as a little bit apprehensive or things are going on then. Very often this, uh, this um, relationship was, was depicted as being incestuous, a kind of sacred marriage, like the pharaoh and his consort, or Isis and Osiris. Um, anyway, um, you get the uh, the two coming together as the first indication of the conjunctio necessary for creating the Philosopher's Stone. Um, the, again, the queen there is standing on a lunar globe, and the king is standing on a kind of, of um, solar fire. 
Um, you can't, you may not be able to see this, but the Latin there and the Latin there reads as follows. With the Queen's heroine's milk and the King's scroll has coagula masculinum, coagulate the masculine. The word, the word coagulate is very important, and I'll come on to that later. Um, one could spend a long time on talking about the various qualities uh, um, also symbolized by these figures, but um, my time won't allow me to do this, um, and so I have to pass on. So if we could have the lights back on, Stephen. Um, and anyway, um, to go back to the, the, the quote from the English alchemist Arthur D, where I said he talks about our infant of royal stock, they produce, the two figures produce the infant of royal stock. Um, the emerald tablet itself says of this inf infant or little man, homunculus, the Latin term, such as we, uh, uh, um, tells us quite a bit about uh, this, that the father thereof is the son, the mother, the moon. This is what the Emerald Tablet itself says. And if you want to read about an actual alchemical creation of that, turn to part two of Goethe's Faust, where the disciple or the scholar who is, uh, for whom Faust is the teacher does produce in his laboratory, the scene that takes place in the laboratory in Goethe's Faust, does produce a little man inside uh, the glass retort which is able to fly and take um, Faust and Mephistopheles um, back in time as well as in space to classical Greece. But this is a, this is a complicated story uh, of its own. Now, as an indication of the way in which alchemy's richly interior dimension was interpreted and assimilated, we only have to turn to the field of poetry, both Islamic and European, place in the laboratory in Goethe's Faust, does produce a little man inside uh, the glass retort, which is able to fly and take um, Faust and Mephistopheles um, back in time as well as in space to classical Greece. But this is a, this is a complicated story uh, of its own. Now, as an indication of the way in which alchemy's richly interior dimension was interpreted and assimilated, we only have to turn to the field of poetry, both Islamic and European, where its potential for imaginative embodiment was speedily recognized. In the work of the great Persian poet Rumi, um, as with other Sufi masters, the domain of mystical love is early on invaded by alchemical images. As the Islamic scholar Anna-Marie Schimmel, whom I believe has lectured for Temenus, Stephen, hasn't she, and also sadly has died, um, has put it, um, those poets who primarily hope for sanctification of their lives prefer the images of alchemy. This is from her book, As Through a Veil. Uh, there, there are copies on the table over there, Mystical Poetry in Islam. The lover can appear as sulfur or dry kindling, ready to catch fire, and more frequently as a reed bed which has been burned <coughs> up. Such images go back to ancient rites of purification through fire and lead in turn to the vocabulary of alchemy. So there seems to be a very, very close association in Islamic and Sufi poetry between um, Sufi mysticism on the one hand and um, alchemy on the other. Um, 
And again, she, she goes on to say, Persian poets love to speak of the copper which becomes gold when it is touched by the alchemy of love or by the hand of the beloved and of the necessity of suffering in the crucible for the sake of purification. And as Rumi himself has expressed it, quote Rumi, alchemists, love's alchemy will reshape gallows into altars. And again, from love, bitter things become sweet. From love, copper becomes golden. To switch back now to the scene at home during the Elizabethan and Jacobean periods, Shakespeare's plays are full of alchemical and hermetic images. Um, as with this well-known passage from the end of Act I of Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth exclaims that, quote, Duncan's two chamberlains will I with wine and wassail so convince, that is say overpower, that memory the water of the brain shall be a fume. And again, from love bitter things become sweet. From love, copper becomes golden. To switch back now to the scene at home during the Elizabethan and Jacobean periods, Shakespeare's plays are full of alchemical and hermetic images. Um, as with this well-known passage from the end of Act I of Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth exclaims that, quote, Duncan's two chamberlains will I with wine and wassail so convince, that is say overpower, that memory the water of the brain shall be a fume and the receipt container or receiver of reason, a limbeck only. Uh, limbeck, a then current version, uh, it was a then current version, of course, um, of um, alembic, which itself, like many of, the, uh, like many of alchemy's uh, instruments, came from the Arabic. Um, and it is the term usually denoting the cap or head of a still, but not here. Um, via intoxication, Lady Macbeth is saying, the two chamberlains uh, will have their memory turned to, into a foam, in, into a fume or smoke, hence vaporized away. Um, and uh, the container of reason, the receptacle of reason, instead of distilling and then condensing, is turned into a limbeck only. I, I, I'll quote you very briefly an explan a, a further explanation of this by just a bit of personal thing here by somebody called Ernest Schanzer from the Arden edition. Ernest was a colleague of mine, University of Munich, but he comes up with something that I think is absolutely true. He says, the full meaning of the alchemic metaphor that, f that follows, this is the one in, about the, uh, the Limbeck and that, seems never to have been brought out by commentators. Receipt appears, receipt of reason only, appears to comprise both the meaning of container, suggested by the theory that reason occupies a separate ventricle of the brain, and that of the receiver at the bottom of the still in which the end product is gathered and condensed. Limbeck here clearly refers not to the head or cap of the still, the alembic proper, as it is often explained, but to the retort or uh, cucurbit like a gourd, that means, the vessel in which the liquids to be distilled are heated. This seems to have been the more common use of limbic or alembic in Shakespeare's day. The full meaning of the image is therefore that the receptacle, which should collect only the pure drops of reason, the final distillate of the thought process, will be turned into the retort in which the crude and distilled liquids bubble and fume. And to make this clearer, if you look at your, your sheets, your handouts, on page one, right down to the bottom, um, 
On the right-hand side, there are two panels. Um, the one on the right that I'm referring to now is a fictional representative of, um, of uh, Hermes uh, Trismegistus himself. And there, right down in the corner, you get the furnace, the, the, the alchemist's uh, furnace, and just above it, you get this kind of three-piece glass instrument. And the alembic is actually the cap that's on the top, the one in the middle. That's the cap or the head of the still. And um, right on the left is the, um, is the receiver or the cucurbit that receives from having uh, the first uh, uh, glass globe being heated right above the fire, then vaporized in the still, in the cap, and then goes down this long kind of pipe into the third one and then kind of, of, of appears there as a distilled liquid. Now, what Shakespeare seems to be saying is that um, ha these two chamberlains having been made drunk, what happened is instead of them receiving reason distilled and, and, and improved in glass number three, the limbeck goes back to glass number one. Uh, uh, glass, yes, glass uh, number one, where it's still bubbling and, and kind of producing all kinds of things. I mean, I, I quote this at some length, first of all, to make it uh, more specific, but secondly, also for you to see how alchemy gets into the, into the nerve and into the, into the actual grain of the text. And there are many other examples, just one other uh, small example. Um, in Sonnet 119, which paints the impact made on the young Shakespeare by the Dark Lady, we find, quote Shakespeare, what portions have I drunk of, silent, of siren tears distilled from limbecks foul as hell within, where uh, traumatic erotic change is expressed alchemically. You see, the thing about alchemy is that it, is, it, it has to do basically with change and transformation. And that, in, 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 in uh, any kind of literary work, whether it be, as it were, a Shakespeare drama, or the next person I'll go on to the next word, is Dunn's poetry, is admirably suited for projecting these changes in a very plastic and imaginative way. Um, but finally, on Shakespeare, and more generally, as demonstrated in a book by somebody called Charles Nichols, The Chemical Theatre, Shakespeare's plays are massively indebted to alchemy along the lines of dramatic inner transformation. The one he makes most play of is King Lear. And the changes that King Lear, apart from other uh, um, um, characters, undergo. Also, of course, it applies very much to, thing, uh, uh, to uh, um, later plays like, uh, like The Tempest. Um, and, of course, in Shakespeare, you get the overall use of what I've called Renaissance contrariety, um, positives and negatives being placed together and other things kind of coming out of them. And I would recommend here also Robert Grudin's book, Mighty Opposites, Shakespeare and Renaissance Contrariety. Those are two uh, very useful books indeed. Now, in Dunn's songs and sonnets, there are a number of alchemical images used from the cold quicksilver sweat of the apparition to Love's Limbeck in a nocturnal upon St. Lucy's Day and the cynical poem titled Love's Alchemy, where Dunn compares not finding love's hidden mystery with, quote, as no chemic yet the elixir got but glorifies his pregnant pot. 
That is, no alchemist has yet discovered the universal panacea in the form of drinkable gold, aurum potabile, which is equivalent to the philosopher's stone and capable of extending life and curing all illness. But nevertheless, he still extols his pregnant pot, the round glass chamber and hermetic vessel giving birth to the opus. This vessel had a variety of names, such as pot, vessel, ark, ship, chariot, castle, fort, glasshouse, womb, sphere, pumpkin, grave, or coffin temple garden. A whole galaxy of fanciful names pointing to the imaginative nature and range of alchemical vocabulary. A brief um, insertion here is just as you have that linguistically and symbolically, as it were, so you have something similar visually in the slides, in the one slide I've just um, shown you. So what I'm really saying is that the, uh, the whole kind of ethos and tradition of alchemy, together with its visual and printed, as here, kind of forms, um, must have struck a lot of, of intellectuals, particularly, as highly imaginative. Highly imaginative. Um, and the same applies to the elixir, which could be either white or red, the former being symbolized by the moon or lunar, the virgin or Diana, the swan and dove, white lily and rose, snow and the silver sea, uh, produced at the albedo, the whitening stage. I should say quickly there are four main stages. I'll come on to these later in the whole alchemical process. The first one where, th where things are pretty awful is the negredo, the blackening stage. This is the state of disintegration. You have to break down the metals into the basic substance. Then you get the, the albedo, which is the whitening, the purification, the, 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 the transforming in, 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 in the best sense. Then you get the third stage, stage, which was then dropped to some extent in the later Middle Ages, the citrinitas, from citrine lemon colored, which indicates also moving onwards to, to the dawn, the yellowness, the lemon of the dawn. And the final stage is the rubedo, the, red, the reddening stage, when then, with, with a bit of luck, you get the philosopher's stone. Uh, but I'll say more about this in a moment. This is just to um, uh, fit you into the picture when I'm using these terms before I really come in detail to deal with them. Anyway, parallel to all, uh, um, um, all this in purely visual terms is the rich tradition of iconography. I've mentioned this. And, um, but now we have to return to alchemy's origins. Up till fairly recently... Um, I said these were located in the Eastern Mediterranean sometime during the Hellenistic period of the early centuries AD. On the other hand, the old, al uh, the old alchemists themselves always maintained that their royal art emanated from ancient Egypt and that the founding father of their hermetic cosmology, Hermes Trismegistus, the father of the so-called Corpus Hermeticum, a collection of writings in Greek on medicine, alchemy, religion, and magic, was an Egyptian priest of great antiquity. The Renaissance scholar, Marsilio Ficino, who first translated the Hermetica into Latin, thus making them available to a European scholarly public from the 1460s, believed that Hermes Trismegistus lived and wrote prior to Moses and Plato. From that point on, he was generally thought to be the creator of the so-called Prisca Theologia, or ancient theology 
which then was taken up and expanded by Moses, Plato and others to form a tradition of bequeathed wisdom. But all this was disproved in 1614 when the Jewish scholar Isaac Casabon discovered via textual analysis that the Hermetica were definitely post-Christian. Even so, several themes, concepts and strands of thinking are now being increasingly found to be much older than this, with parallels drawn from ancient Egypt. And a number of, uh, of, of um, Ficino and Hermetica scholars have drawn attention to this change of viewpoint, such as Clement Salomon, who was lectured here, B.P. Kovenhaver, Peter Kingsley, and Jean-Pierre Marais, as well as opening up other parallels. But for my purpose, I want to adduce Alison Roberts's work in Egyptian studies. Alison is with us this evening at the back, incidentally. And if you want to ask her about the Egyptian uh, input, she is the one to ask about this. And her book, uh, My Heart, My Mother, Death and Rebirth in Ancient Egypt, not only points to links between the Corpus Hermeticum and the ancient wisdom of death and rebirth as closely related to New Kingdom Egyptian death and rebirth rites, practiced at Memphis, one of the temple centers of metallurgical wisdom, but also, which is especially exciting, that medieval and Renaissance alchemy contain submerged and amalgamated, as it were, the essentials of this wisdom. She traces um, in convincing detail, for instance, an underlying pattern of regeneration in Salomon, Trismos, and Splendor Solis, of which I've showed you one, I'll show one or two other um, slides in a moment, that closely corresponds with the ancient Egyptian journey through Nut, goddess of the sky. And all this, of course, fits in precisely with the underlying principle and active practice of the alchemical process re rendered in the famous uh, commandment, solve et coagule, dissolve and coagulate, conducted a number of times on the base metal. In a recent review of My Heart, My Mother, it, actually in, in, a, in a Temenus Academy review number four, Jeremy Nadler aptly sums up the position of things as follows, and this, I think, is, is <coughs> worthwhile taking to heart. The reason why the argument that alchemy has its origins in ancient Egypt has not generally been accepted by scholars to date is that they have been lamentably unfamiliar with the traditions of ancient Egypt while most Egyptologists have been decidedly uninterested in alchemy. With the Solve et Coagule principle still in mind, it is now time to say something more specific about the alchemical process itself. Several distinct chemical activities were involved, such as purifying, distilling, um, crystallizing, calcination, and so on, together with a whole range of apparata and vessels. An athanor, Arabic for furnace, if you look at the, the one, it's not a very good one at the bottom of page one, but if you look to bottom of page two, the bottom illustration, you see one in the middle, which is being treated by an attendant or servant, as it were, with a bellows, and then more uh, spectacularly, if perhaps more symbolically, the top of page three um, is, is, is an example of that. Um, and then you get all the other apparatus, the bellows, retorts, crucibles, alembics, stills, and so on. Um, in short, as we said, the first real laboratory was involved. Now, there are four stages to the alchemical process, as I've said. The first stage is a nigredo, or blackening stage, a state of disintegration 
in which the base metal is broken down into its prima materia, or original or first uh, uh, um, um, material or substance. This was thought to, to, to really be the, the ur-substance, as it were, out of which all other, uh, um, all other objects, all other uh, uh, kinds of, um, of um, earthly things are, um, are made via putrefactio and dissolutio, so that it can then be renewed in a different and higher form. Um, undoubtedly, the, neg the negredo, as the word implies, um, has its source in Egypt's black and fruitful earth, involving at the plant and crop level, um, as here in the alchemical process, both decay and death, which presuppose rebirth in a new form. Could I have the next slide, Stephen? Uh, this is the first slide of the Splendor Solis series and um, shows you um, the shows you two uh, philosophers, two um, beginning alchemists or initiates perhaps in front of the temple of alchemy. Um, and this is the, uh, you get the two main alchemical planets here, the sun and the moon with three little figures of the faces of homunculi. Um, and also, I don't know whether you can see it um, uh, clearly enough, there's rather a, a kind of idyllic um, landscape at the back and out of this is a, there's, there's a stream coming that appears here in waves that obviously have something to do with the stream going down into the depths and involving this process of dissolution and that. This is why they're anxiously as it were debating what is going to happen um, as it were when they enter. And here you get the coat of arms um, of alchemy, the arma artis, as it were. Yes? Um, if the monkey. Pardon? The monkey at the bottom. Oh, yes, there are all these. Uh, um, I don't know how the. the uh, he's doing something here with the, uh, with the heron, isn't he? Or stork. Heron, probably, here. Um, are you going to suggest something? In fact, there are two herons, aren't there? Um, if you had any ideas what they symbolize, Um Pardon? Oh, the you, yeah, usually, and, and, and you have another monkey over here playing a kind of lute, don't you? Um, and, and, and an owl over here. Usually the monkeys are not, um, are not uh, symbolizing particularly positive qualities. They very often are used satirically to imitate what humans are doing. Um, I don't know, uh, um, and this seems to be mainly decorated, but on the other hand, I take it all the animals at that point in time would have an allegorical uh, significance. Um, what you have up here, I think, isn't this the, the hoopoe, who is, who is um, a very important bird, associated, I think, certainly in Islamic uh, um, texts with wisdom in that. Um, the owl, of course, as well. Um, anyway, the, the monkey here is also, you can see, feeding the stork fish. He seems to be helpful in this particular case. Um, that's all I can tell you at the moment about that, I'm afraid. Right, could we have the... 
Um, right. The um, alchemical commandment is solve et coagule. Um, Dissolve and coagulate um, is comes out also as a kind of complete alchemical credo. If you come across it in a very late poem, very moving late poem actually by Goethe called "Selige Sehnsucht" or "Blissful Yearning." The English, which is it's very difficult to translate, is a bit banal. I'll give you the German very quickly after. It's only a few lines, and so long as you don't have this, uh, die and become, you will only be a shadowy guest upon this dark planet. Um, und solange du das nicht hast, dieses, stirb und werde, bist du nur ein trüber Gast auf der dunklen Erde. What, it, what Goethe is implying there, as in alchemy, is that unless you are prepared to, or unless you know how to die and then be reborn, while you're living you will never really be at home in life. You'll only wander as a dark guest on this planet. And this is obviously a, 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 a literal, stirb und werde is die and become, is, is a literal translation of the Latin solve et coagule. And I can't go into this now at the moment, but if you look at Goethe's life and at um, a lot of his thinking in Faust and elsewhere, you see that the alchemical, the basic al alchemical credo of die and become is taken over in a way different from but similar to that which you have apparently in, in Islamic Sufi poetry, that the lover dies before he can become anything and so on. Anyway, the second stage is uh, the albedo or whitening stage in which the previous blackness has been washed away and purified via ablution and is symbolized by the full moon. The prime agent during the ablution proce proceedings is mercurial water, an aqua vitae concealed in the deepest recesses of matter and of supreme importance throughout the whole of the alchemist's operations. Um, I'll have more to say about the personified uh, Mercurius as a shifting and transforming agent later. For the moment, what needs to be stressed is the halfway achievement represented by the albedo state. And sometimes you get experiments and texts that only take you to this halfway stage. This halfway stage, the albedo, the whitening, is itself a kind of plateau. Um, as Lindy Abraham puts it in her excellent dictionary of alchemical imagery, which I can recommend to you, the clear moonlight of the albedo leads the adept out of the black night of the soul, the negredo, into the dawning of consciousness, heralding the advent of full consciousness symbolized by the midday sun at the final red stage of the opus, the, the rubedo. In the light of this quotation, plus what we have said so far about these first two stages of the process, alchemy makes great play with color, so that it is not at all surprising to learn that after the negredo and just prior to the albedo, we get what is called the peacock's tail, the cauda pavonis, a rainbow-like spread of hues which Jung suggested may well derive from the iridescent skin that often forms on the surface of molten metal. Could we have the next slide, uh, Stephen? 
just very briefly. Yes. And now I can tell you something more about the background um, of this one um, as opposed to the one with the animals, apart from having said that they probably have allegorical significance. Here, but first of all, however, you get the peacock inside the um, hermetic vessel, the crown at the top, and you see the spread tail. Um, the peacock, incidentally, does, has nothing to do with pride in the Christian sense. In alchemy, the peacock... Uh, yes, here we do come to uh, some allegorical or symbolical uh, kind of underscorings of birds. We'll come to birds also in a moment. Um, it is uh, rather um, symbolic of love and beauty, as the bird really that um, characterized Venus, Venus's bird. And the spreading tail with the colors of the rainbow are suggesting rebirth, as it were. One thinks, you, you remember, of the rainbow at the beginning of the Old Testament, that God would not flood um, the earth again. Uh, in the, there's a, um, seven, actually, seven um, illustrations in the Splendor Solis with these um, hermetic retorts. And this is number five. Out, uh, and the seven, obviously, uh, represent the seven planets. I'll come to the planets in a moment. And also Venus and the peacock relating together. And in harmony with this, around them, you get a scene and landscape that is really full of um, love, love-making, music-making, and dancing. Like some of the scenes you get in medieval, in, in, in um, similar medieval planes. And then the pair of birds at the, at the top. That Cupid, of course, there. Probably Venus's chariot there. Yes, Stephen, next, um, if you can have the light on. Um, yes, the bird image of the peacock, for instance, we should note, is extended to all stages of the opus. The crow or the raven for the negredo, the swan or dove for the albedo, the eagle for the rising dawn of the citrinitas, um, and the phoenix, of course, for the rubedo, the fourth and final stage. Um, now, um, the third stage, the citrinitas or yellowing, I've really said this, is, um, is um, lemon-colored and so uh, um, is dawn-like and heralding the full morning sun of the fourth stage. Um, the fourth stage, the rubedo, or reddening stage, is symbolized by the ruby, the red rose and lily, the sun itself as Sol, or the red king, just as the albedo as the full moon signified Luna and the white queen. Thus we see here what is especially in the nature of alchemy, namely that masculine and feminine are properly balanced, and that the philosopher's stone itself is visualized as composed of sulfur, male hot and dry, and agent vive or quicksilver, female cold and moist. The result of this coming together is pictured as what is known, I've already hinted it, the, the chemical wedding, a marriage of opposite substances and energies represented in text and illustrations as coupling lovers, 
identified and portrayed as king and queen, uh, sol and luna, sun and moon, often with explicit brother-sister overtones of incest, which may well, I, I don't know whether I've said this, but may well have their roots back in, in uh, uh, pharaonic ma marriages and that of Isis or Cyrus, as it were, a kind of sacred marriage. This is what it, 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 uh, it implies. If you turn to the bottom of page three of your handouts, in the bottom left-hand corner, you see the kind of thing, uh, the explicit uh, nature of this kind of coupling. And what is interesting about the whole alchemical tradition, it involves this right at the center of things. There is nothing kind of puritanical or splitting apart of the erotic or the sexual. In fact, the sexual is right at the center of the whole uh, um, alchemical credo of the marriage of opposites. Um, and this marriage of opposites was visualized as basically androgynous and was known as the rebis, R-E-B-I-S, or double being. Um, as Nicolas Flamel, the medieval French alchemist, put it, the androgyny or hermaphrodite of the ancients, with perhaps a backward look at Plato's symposium where cosmic man is presented as an androgynous sphere. And one can point, of course, to a number of ancient Egyptian statues uh, with hermaphrodite features, as one can, can with some Indian deities. I see there, I'll come on to this moment, um, a similarity there or a connection between um, this part of the alchemical process and what you get in ancient Egyptian sculpture and in ancient Hindu sculpture as well. Perhaps we could have the next slide, um, Stephen, which I think may be my... Last one, I don't know. Which is a picture of the... Oh, no, it isn't. This is, this is just the... This is the final rubido, um, where you get the risen sun, uh, which, is, which symbolizes, actually, the Philosopher's Stone itself. This may be, incidentally, I've only just thought about this. This is quite obviously a medieval Gothic city, and it may, with Christian overtones there, imply Jerusalem. Christ, incidentally, I should say this, was taken into alchemy and himself identified, particularly the risen body of Christ, with the alchemical stone. And you get something of this if you read, again, Goethe's Faust, part one, just, after, uh, just as Faust is about to commit suicide, at the beginning of part one, he hears the church bells and the, the light comes in of the dawn of Easter uh, Sunday, and there are definite suggestions there between the risen uh, uh, Christ, as it were, on Easter morning and, as it were, a, um, a kind of inward discovery of a new kind of wholeness, as it were, that Faust at that point finds. Uh, yes, I think that's all I need to say there. Stephen, if Can you I could... ask a question? Pardon? Could I ask you? Uh, yes. Maybe we'll come back to it later. The yeah. whole waistline there. Um... Yes, thank you. That's a good point. I think you're dead right. Um, you're quite right. You're quite right, and it's a very interesting point. I tell you why. Um, uh, and, and you're quite right because, quite obviously, this is fertile, yeah. and this is obviously kind of um, not only um, um, not winter. It's it's worse than winter. It's kind of stripped back. It's 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 kind of um, uh, kind of um, destroyed, as it were. Now, this is only off the top of my head. Um, 
I suggest that this may be a symbolic reference to the fact that you, you can't get to the crowning glory without this coming before it. That is to say, you have to die or you have to have decay, you have to have putrefaction and a lot of other things happening before you get to that. That's, that's a good point, I think. Yes? Okay. Um, right, if we now take this whole theme in a more fundamental way, we can apply it to alchemy's overall nature. Lindy Abraham puts it like this. Alchemy is based on the hermetic view that man had become divided within himself, separated into two sexes at the fall in the Garden of Eden, and could only regain his integral Adamic state when the opposing forces within him were reconciled. The union of these universal male and female forces produced that third substance or effect which could heal not only the disease of the physical world, but also the affliction of the separated soul. Metaphysically, the chemical wedding is the perfect union of creative will or power, male, with wisdom, female, to produce pure love, the child, the stone. The creation of this stone always involves some kind of sacrifice or death. Hence your point about the, the landscape is, is, is spot on, I think. Um, thus emblems of the chemical wedding almost always include symbols of death which overshadow the conjunctio. And Titus Burkhardt, in a chapter titled Of the Chemical Marriage, um, in his book on alchemy, makes exactly the same point, but in, an Ill, but in an illuminating way that contrasts it with mysticism. This, I think, is important. The marriage of sulfur and quicksulfur, he says, sun and moon, king and queen, is a central symbol of alchemy. It is only um, on the basis of the interpretation of this symbol that a distinction can be made between, on the one hand, alchemy and mysticism, and on the other, between alchemy and psychology. Speaking in general terms, mysticism's point of departure is that the soul has become alienated from God and turned towards the world. Consequently, the soul must be reunited with God, and this it does by discovering in itself his immediate and all-illuminating presence. Alchemy, on the other hand, is based on the view that man, as a result of the loss of his original Adamic state, is divided within himself, he regains his integral nature only when the two powers whose discord has rendered him impotent are again reconciled with one another. This inward and now congenital duality in human nature is moreover a consequence of the fall from God just as Adam and Eve only became aware of their opposition after the fall and were expelled into the current of generation and death. Inversely, the regaining of the integral nature of man, which alchemy expresses by the symbol of the masculine, feminine, androgyny, is the prerequisite, or from another point of view, the fruit of union with God. Hence, alchemy is now, that's the end of, of uh, Burkhardt's uh, passage, hence alchemy's basic position and problem are not, as with mysticism, those of what I would call existential alienation but those of internal division, so that it is not a question of finding one's way back to God, but rather a matter of reintegrating the self. 
Hence the great appeal to Jungian psychology and its principle of individuation. Individuation, Jungian individuation, is to become whole um, after the psyche has been uh, uh, um, integrated. Um, in mysticism, on this reading of it, whatever the splendor of an inner illumination leading back to God comes to, there is still the issue of the world bracketed out. In brief, a constitutional, unresolved tension between soul and world. In alchemy, on the other hand, the problem is differently posited and resolved in terms of an inner self-division implicating sexual dualities and opposing forces, followed by a gradual process of self-reintegration. Hence the chemical wedding, the marriage of opposites, and the fused symbol of the androgyny. Um, the account we get is therefore completely holistic, with the feminine brought right into the centre of things, thereby giving it, for me, qualities both Egyptian and Hindu. I would also add here, following on from uh, Jungian psychology's interest in alchemy, is this is very much in tune with um, certain aspects of modern art. Um, modern art that go back, I suppose, thinking of modern now, back to the Romantics, really. But uh, <coughs> what I'm thinking of is the um, phenomenon we get, common to modern art, of the self-divided artist. You can see this, for instance, in James Joyce's The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, you can find this in Yeats's poems, the later poems, A Dialogue of Self and Soul, which is a debate between two halves of the actual uh, personality of the poet. You get it all the way through D.H. Lawrence, and you get it in Thomas Mann, for instance. One example would be Death in Venice. If you look at the way in which the artist there, um, Gustav von Aschenbach, is presented and what happens, this, this results in tragedy there, but it's essentially about self-divisions. And this may be one of the reasons why alchemy has become <coughs> interesting and fashionable again since Jung, because it doesn't involve us in theological concepts that go beyond into the, into the transcendental as such, although it is by no means um, unaware of this, it is much more concerned with the problematics, as it were, of the total human being as he relates to the cosmos. Um, and I think one could um, also say here um, that, um, that Blake follows here. Blake is not, I think, a mystic in the normal sense of the word. And um, proof of this comes in uh, if you look at what I call his inner epics, the four Zoas would be a very good example, which recounts, and I quote Blake here, Albion's, that is the, the character in his works that obviously symbolizes Great Britain, but is the universal man as well. Albion's fall, this is what the poem is about, he says, Albion's fall into division and his resurrection to unity. This seems to me basically an alchemical idea and not at all mystical in this sense. Um, furthermore, keeping now Egypt and India in mind, the latter also possessing its own, its own alchemical tradition, it is perhaps worth mentioning at this point the central religious cultural role played by the serpent. A sacred and positive one, of course, as opposed to its demonization in Judaism and Christianity. 
For the tail-eaten snake, the so-called Ouroboros, is a major symbol in alchemy embodying the opus alchemicum, itself in the shape of the opus circulatorium. Johannes Fabricius explains this as follows. The circular path of the sun through the zodiac, and here uh, you get the connection between um, alchemy, of course, and astrology coming in, is the model of the opus alchemicum, which is frequently called the opus circulatorium. All important is the dualistic view of the universe as the battleground of opposing forces. The alchemist's intention is to resolve this conflict harmoniously, one by a purifying, a putri a putrefying movement of death and rebirth, two by a return to a primal matter, and three by a rotatory movement turning the wheel of creation backward um, in an opus contra naturum. That is a work against the process of nature, aimed at a return to the source of all creation or God. This is the famed opus circulatorium in which the subject of regeneration consumes himself in the manner of the, of the Euroboric serpent. In this passage, we note the depiction of the alchemical work as being comparable to the movement of the sun through the zodiac um, and um, where we also get seven key metals and one alloy, I know, yes, I'm running out of time, I know, and one alloy represented. There's a sketch of this, I won't turn to it now, on, the, on page um, six, the top of page six of your handouts. Um, such cosmic mirroring is completely in the spirit of the Corpus Hermeticum, as above, so below, and vice versa, the connection with the planets and astrology and that, so that our awareness is made to operate on different levels simultaneously. Thus the circularity of the sun's path resembles that of the tail-eating serpent, which symbolized the primal cosmic unity and its ongoing activity as a cyclic power through time, continually consuming and renewing itself disintegrating, then reintegrating, just like the solver et coagulate principle in alchemy. Jung talks of the essence of creative power in the eternal cycle of birth and death in this connection. And illustrations of the Ouroboros sometimes bear the Greek caption. Um, if you, while I'm saying this, turn to page um, five, the bottom half of page five, where you get the Ouroboros there, um, uh, reproduce one version. Um, it bears sometimes bears the Greek caption "hin to pan," which is there, or "hin kai pan," the one, the all, or the one and all, implying unity and diversity as well as a total union of opposites. Hence, some depictions of the Ouroboros show him as half black and half white, just as with the yin yang symbol, which of course also represents a marriage of dynamic polar opposites, masculine and feminine. What is then especially intriguing is to learn that the Ouroboros was seen in conjunction with Mercury Hermes, both as God and as central transforming agent in the alchemical work. Jung, again, is illuminating on this. The dark Mercurius, as opposed to Mercurius, the revelatory light of nature, must once again be understood as representing the initial negredo state, the lowest being a symbol of the highest, and vice versa. He is the Ouroboros, the one and all, the union of opposites accomplished during the alchemical process. 
Mercurius has the circular nature of the Ouroboros, since he, hence he is symbolized by the circular simplex of which he is at the same time the center. He can therefore say of himself, I am one and at the same time many in myself. Not only does he bear two serpents coiled around his wand or caduceus, this is uh, Mercury, of course, but he is an extremely ambivalent figure. As the messenger of the gods, mediating between their upper world and that of men, carrying messages from one to the other, able also to descend into the underworld and return. Yet he is sexually ambiguous too, something which apart from anything else is basically and beautifully mirrored in the substance that pinpoints his elusive nature, namely quicksilver. Both a metal and a liquid, fixed and flowing, hence duplex, as he was termed, or duplicit, Intrinsically changeable and shape-shifting like Proteus, with whom he was sometimes compared, Mercury Hermes is aligned with the so-called Mercurial Serpent, present throughout the work, dark and disintegrating in the Negredo stage in order to start the process off and dissolve the base metal into its prima materia, then progressively an agent, the agent, effecting a series of heightening transformations as it goes through the whole opus, at the same time changing its own powers from the chthonic and dark by, quote, from the Rosarium, an alchemical text, himself lifting himself on high. So that in the Tractatus Aureus, another alchemical text, late medieval period, um, an Arabic text attributed to Hermes, we get this. My light excels all other lights and my goods are higher than all other goods. I beget the light, but the darkness too is of my nature. So it is then, the unstable, elusive character of Mercury Hermes is somewhat shifting and shifty god of thieves' nature, which identifies him with a coiling serpent who is always taking on new shapes and re-emerges with a new skin, essentially a moving, dynamic, undulating energy and force capable of continually renewing and transforming itself, a shape-shifting presence. Already, as you can see, we are describing features of the creative imagination. And as we shall be progressively able to, to perceive, this faculty lies at the heart of the alchemical process. And was, I am more and more convinced, the main source inside European culture of introducing the imagination in a radically new and totally upgraded way, giving it a hitherto unknown preeminence. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jack, for that um, glimpse into what is obviously a very fascinating and complex world of thought. Really, really very fascinating. Um, we haven't very much time left, and I'm sure a lot of you will have questions. So I'll let um, yes, find some. See um, who would like to. Yes. I was just wondering if you had time to just quickly explain what these two images... Well, <laughs> I'm sorry I had to overshoot my time. As it was, I, I, I had to leave out quite a bit. Um, you mean the... Um, oh, yes. Well, this is the top of page four. Uh, I can't say much about, uh, uh, about this, but this goes back to the um, question that was asked about the monkey by lady up here somewhere. Uh, is that um, you can see here with regard to the actual apparatus 
um, and instruments in the in the um, in the alchemist's laboratory. These were all given animal names, and um, this is, I suppose, in part because of their shapes. Maybe in some sense also due to their functions. But what is interesting, I can't tell you more than that, apart to suggest, not only in terms of that, but if you look at, um, say, page three as well, um, you get the same kind of thing. You get, um, I've been talking about the mercurial serpent, and the first of these shows you this in the form of an actual uh, glass instrument, as it were, this wiggly kind of glass thing there. You see, what seems to happen is here as elsewhere um, that the glass instruments um, seem to suggest all kinds of animal and other symbols. And this gives to them uh, something highly imaginative. Um, I, I suppose there are uh, basic uh, reasons for giving uh, one the name of the tortoise, the one you asked about, simply because the hump of the glass at the top of page four does look a bit like a tortoise, I suppose. One might want to um, argue. Um, okay, that's, 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 that's all I can say. Any other questions you'd like to ask? Ah, yes. Uh, the Goethe poem is called Selige Sehnsucht, uh, um, Blissful Longing. It's a late poem. Um, you may get it in the... I think there's, an, uh, there's a dual, tra there's a dual uh, translation um, edition of, of Goethe's poems in Penguin, if I remember rightly, and I think it's there. It's, but it's a late poem, one, when Goethe was an old man. It's called Selige Sehnsucht, it, yes. It's, 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 it's an incredibly moving poem. It's, it's about a, um, a moth being burnt at a candle. Uh, I won't tell you any more, but it's, 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 it's a remarkable poem. Dick? Uh, yeah, uh, one of the slides you showed was about yeah. two philosophers. Yes. The sun, I, was, I was reminded of that. Caspar David Friedrich, two men. Oh, I see, yes. No, I hadn't thought of that, yes. Uh, Alchemical interpretation you made of Casper David Friedrich. Well, you got me on that one. Um, I would really have to think and, and kind of check and check this. But I, the, the the presence of the two figures, which you rightly remind me of, is so characteristic of a lot of of, of uh, Casper David Friedrich's paintings. I don't know. Um, I, I I imagine that he would be reasonably well informed about alchemy. Um, at the point of time when he was living the early 19th century, end of the 18th, 19th century, um, he would know something about it, but what the direct input is there, um, I would have to do some work on it, or I would have to look around. Okay? I think those alchemical traditions did have a considerable input into the German Romantic movement. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, very much so. And you would get it simply, I, I didn't get on to this through, um, and he comes into this country as well, um, is through Burma. Yes. You see, Burma has its roots in, in alchemy, but he shifts it into a kind of, of Protestant inwardness that was definitely kind of very influential in Germany. And here, Blake had read him in English, he didn't have German. Um, but Hegel called Burma, for instance, the father of German idealism. So, so he's right at the, at, the, at the beginning of this, as it were. Yes, 
astrological. That's right. That's right. And I think it is all. Yes. Should I should I say th I I, um, I hadn't thought of this, and I, I don't talk about this in the rest of my uh, lecture either. Is that um, the alchemical way of thinking, if you can put it like this, is to say basically thinking in opposites. You see the masculine and the feminine, the dark and the light, and, and that these are not dualistically seen. I mean, if they're dualistically seen, then there is a negative... It is the opposite of yin and yang. So yin and yang are complementary <coughs> opposites. And so the opposites of masculine, feminine, sun and moon, and all the other kind of values associated with these symbols and with, um, um, with matter and spirit go together. There's no opposition as such as in certain aspects of Christianity and, and of, of Platonism between uh, materia and spirit. 